The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, Houston. Con's prices are invincible. That means prices have been cut low, as in amazingly low, as in won't be beat. In fact, we're backing it up with our low price guarantee. Invincible prices on appliances, furniture, electronics, mattresses, and more. Not invincible enough for you? How about free next day delivery on appliances, TVs, and mattresses? And payment options for everyone, whether you have good credit or building. Visit Cons today and find out what invincible feels like. We cannot fight against the whole world. General der Infanterie und Ersten Generalquartiermeister Erich Ludendorff, September 29th. 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 63, Mers a global overview. Many thanks to Dave, Jonathan, Marty, Victor, and Doug for signing up for support or continuing support on Patreon. Patrons on Patreon will have early access to all new episodes, as well as operations maps, transcripts, and bibliographies for those episodes. They will also have other perks, such as not-yet-released episodes and being able to submit a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. Patrons also have the possibility of naming a battle they'd like to hear covered on the show. Many thanks to David for his generous donation as well. It is greatly appreciated and very humbling. I thank you all for your ongoing support, your donations, and your reviews, especially during these trying times. These times are hard on all of us, and on some of us, they're even harder. So please just remember, we are all in this together. The only way we're going to get through this is to dig deep, hold the line, and work together to stop this virus. Do your bit and stay home, wear a mask, do the social distancing thing, dig in, hold that line. Our watchword is tenir, holding on. We can all do our bit. All right, back to the front. Not long after the event, AEF Commander General John J. Pershing wrote in his journal that, quote, On Sunday, the 29th, Monsieur Clemenceau came to visit the First Army. He was pleased with our progress and was especially delighted at the capture of Montfaucon. He insisted on going there, notwithstanding my warning that it was dangerous to do so and that the roads were filled with traffic. 
I felt real solicitude for his safety, as Montfaucon was a prominent target for the enemy's artillery. The road he took was crowded with trucks that morning, due especially to the trains of the 1st Division, which was going to the front to relieve the 35th. He failed to reach Montfaucon and left rather disappointed, thinking, no doubt, that our transportation was hopelessly swamped, as we soon began to hear of criticisms to that effect, not only by the French, but even by some Americans. End quote. Pershing's diary entry spins a rosy view of this little incident, although it does touch on a painfully accurate assessment of the situation behind American lines. Pershing seems to have written it in a way that would cast doubt on future readers that it really was as bad as some people had said it was. Yes, on the 29th of September, French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau had taken a drive up to the American First Army Front to see Montfaucon. Specifically, he wanted to see the Crown Prince's periscope in the ruins of the hill, the apparatus quickly became a sight that everybody wanted to see. But Clemenceau's car could not get through the massive traffic jam that had paralyzed the three horribly inadequate roads behind the Meurs front. Not even Clemenceau, the tiger himself, and one of the most powerful and influential leaders of France could get through that mess. Sérieux, he fumed. C'est des conneries. The Prime Minister's car turned around and headed back to Paris. Clemenceau didn't actually utter those words, although it would have been very apropos if he had. He was furious at the now second setback he had experienced with the Americans, and he was sick of it. Two weeks earlier, he had been denied the ability to visit Thiocourt down in the recently liberated Saint-Miel salient. In all reality, the American-issued denial of access was due to German shelling of Thiocourt, but the incident stuck in his craw. Now Clemenceau had been denied again by the Americans, this time due to the exasperating chaos that were the American supply lines. It wasn't just that the tiger was frustrated or angry. He wanted a head to roll for this, and that head was Pershing's. Clemenceau wanted the American general fired for what he now deemed as a pattern of incompetence in handling his armies. Of course, Pershing would not be fired. Washington wouldn't hear of it. But Blackjack was indeed facing some criticism by Allied Commander Marshal Ferdinand Foch for the AEF's lack of progress in the Meuse-Argonne. Even General Philippe Pétain, commander of the French army and a defender of the Americans, was having a hard time waving this away, especially as compared to how things were going everywhere else. By the end of September 1918, Germany and the Central Powers were on the defensive with no hope of winning this devastating war. To use Google Maps as a metaphor, we've been in street view for a while now as we've followed American doughboys fighting their battles in the Meuse-Argonne. But now we need to zoom out a bit and take a more regional and then a global view. We need to take a look at events in France, Flanders, and in other parts of the world as well. And we need to take a look on the diplomatic front. Relating 
to Clausewitz's dictum that war was a continuation of politics by other means, military events were definitely having an effect on diplomatic and political developments. On the Western Front, following Foch's long-sought strategy of attacking the Germans everywhere at once, the Allies were on the advance everywhere. The Americans had launched their attack in the Meuse-Argonne on the 26th of September with an eye toward taking Sedan, the heart of Germany's rail network lifeline that kept the war going. The next day, the British attacked the Hindenburg Line near Cambrai and by nightfall had bagged over 10,000 German prisoners. On the 28th, an Allied force led by King Albert of Belgium attacked in Flanders and in short order, the Germans would be abandoning the Channel ports. The day after that, Allied forces crossed the Sonquinton Canal. The Hindenburg Line was crumbling, and the German army was hemorrhaging men. Between the 17th and 24th of September, before the major Allied attacks began, the British army alone captured 30,000 prisoners. Diplomatically, the Central Powers were also in retreat. On the 16th of September, the United States rejected an Austro-Hungarian peace offer. The Allies followed suit the next day. On the 19th, the Belgians categorically rejected a ridiculous German peace offer that would not have let the occupied nation seek any reparations from their invader. But September 30th was a day that showed that the Central Powers were not just retreating, but breaking apart because on that day, Bulgaria bowed out of the Great War. The Allied Salonika Front had been held in check by strong Bulgarian defenses, as well as poor planning for years. In late 1917, however, the French sent General Adolphe Guillaume to set things in order there. A capable general, Guillaume did just that over the next six months that he was in charge of this backwater front. He restored interworking relationships between British, French, Greek, Italian, and Serb forces in Macedonia and laid the groundwork for a future offensive that would bring a world of hurt on the Bulgarians. Guillaume was transferred back home in June of 1918 and French General Louis Franchet Desperé took over. Desperé was nicknamed Desperate Frankie by his British subordinates, but this illustrated more the inability of the Brits to properly pronounce his name than it did his personality. Desperé stated on his arrival that from his officers he expected a savage vigor, and he immediately set about preparing for an offensive. Very much in contrast to Allied political plans for a limited offensive in Macedonia, Desperé was looking to deliver a knockout blow that would take out the Bulgarians permanently and smash open the back door to Germany. Desperé's plan for the Salonika front was to attack in the Moglenica Mountains, rather than the expected and tried and failed Varda River Valley Zone. The Bulgarians, used to handily defeating poorly coordinated Allied attacks here, would never expect an attack to come through such rough terrain. When the Allied war councils finally gave Desperé and his Army of the Orient permission to go ahead in early to mid-September, 
They were already in the jump-off trenches and waiting to be unleashed. On September 14th, 500 guns opened up on Bulgarian positions with a ferocity that was unknown on this battlefront. The next day, the international force attacked along an 80-mile front. It was difficult and literally uphill fighting that saw French flamethrowers burn Bulgarian machine gunners out of their nests. But by evening, the Allies had broken the Dobropolye mountain positions. The next day, the Kozyak mountain line further back was broken into, and two war-weary Bulgarian regiments mutinied. Under mounting pressure from all sides, a Bulgarian General Lukov stated his opinion that it was perhaps time to support peace initiatives. Bulgaria's Tsar Ferdinand replied to Lukov directly, Go out and get killed in your present lines. Two days after the infantry attacks began, Desparhe's troops had a 6-mile deep and 20-mile wide salient bulging dangerously into Bulgarian lines. Further south, combined British and Greek attacks around Lake Doiran stalled out, but tied down enemy forces. A German general on the scene named Schultz realized that the Bulgarians were cracking at the seams. When he asked Berlin for help, he got nothing. Things in France were bad, and no troops could be spared. Schultz could only work with what he had, and it wasn't much. If the Bulgarians lost the Gradsko supply depot, it was over. Schultz called for a retreat in order to get the Allies to overextend their supply lines and leave themselves vulnerable to attacks. Instead, the Bulgarian First Army dissolved, especially when the Royal Air Force took to machine-gunning the retreating Bulgarians on the roads back home. The Allies pressed the attack. This was no limited offensive. Despoche was playing to win and win permanently. Anti-war riots broke out across Bulgaria. On the 25th, British units entered Bulgaria proper. On the 28th, the Bulgarian government requested peace talks with the Allies. On the 29th, after a six-day and 57-mile advance through the mountains, a French cavalry unit entered Skopje. There was no hope for Bulgaria now. They agreed to an armistice. On September 30th, the fighting officially ceased at noon. Bulgaria was out, and on the River Danube, a sound that hadn't been heard for well over a century thundered across the land, that of French artillery. The back door to Germany had just been kicked open. With the Bulgars out, the remaining Central Powers were now physically split from each other. The Ottoman Turks were on their own, and they had been taking a beating since British General Edmund Allenby had begun attacking in Palestine on the 20th of September. The Sublime Port and its army, wary after years of war on multiple fronts, began crumbling as soon as Allenby sent his men in. Within a couple of days of beginning the offensive, Allenby's Egyptian expeditionary force captured some 10,000 Turkish prisoners. Nazareth fell so quickly that the German commander of Turkish forces, General Liman von Sanders, had to haul his ass out on the double in nothing but his pajamas. The Turks retreated north from Palestine, into the Transjordan, 
and on into Syria. The RAF slaughtered hundreds of Turkish troops as they ran north on roads with no cover. Haifa fell to the British, then Amman. Then Damascus fell on the 1st of October, showing that Allenby's soldiers had marched 400 miles north through the Holy Land in just 12 days. This came the day after the Bulgarians checked out. While the Turks weren't yet out of the fight, they were left with increasingly few options as the British bore down on them. Moving the map back to France and Flanders, the Allied offensives orchestrated by Marshal Ferdinand Foch were also having their effect. The Germans were giving ground everywhere, losing thousands of men a day as many Frontkämpfer simply called it quits and surrendered to oncoming Allied troops. Thousands of others died or fell wounded as the Imperial German army fought doggedly as it pulled back. On September 28th, General Erich Ludendorff, the military dictator of Germany in all but title, stated that Germany must seek an armistice. But on the same day, Allied troops crossed the Songendon Canal, the 29th. The United States told the Germans they refused to deal with the Kaiser or with his military. The Wilson administration would only deal with democratic representatives of the German people. On October 2nd, Prince Maximilian of Baden became the new German Chancellor. A relatively unknown German noble, who up to this point in the war had quietly devoted his energies to improving the lot of POWs on either side of the Western Front, he took over from Georg Hertling as Chancellor and said, I thought I should have arrived five minutes before the hour, but I arrived five minutes after it. Prince Max was late to getting necessary changes made to Germany's political leadership, but Kaiser Wilhelm did relent to the Chancellor, now answering to the Reichstag instead of himself, and that the German war machine would now answer to the cabinet at the head of the Reichstag. Max of Baden headed that cabinet. Initially, Max pushed back on going to the Allies for an armistice. He wanted to go in strong and negotiate from a position of strength. Max knew about Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, and he knew that with those conditions as America's war aims, Germany stood to lose not only Alsace-Lorraine, but much of East Prussia as well if they went in groveling for a ceasefire. Germany had already twice signaled its rejection of Wilson's 14 points. Earlier that year, on March 3rd, when the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed with the Bolsheviks, and on March 21st, when the German guns opened the Kaiserschlacht on the Western Front. Now, though, with no hope of victory, something had to be done. So, to go from the global view back down to a street view, the Central Powers were breaking apart in the fall of 1918. Bulgaria was out, and Turkey really couldn't last much longer. Germany was internally writhing for an end to the war while its people writhed from hunger. Allied soldiers were pushing forward almost everywhere, in the Middle East, in Macedonia, in Picardy, in Flanders, and Artois. But yes, we said almost everywhere. Because in the Allies' eyes, 
there was one group that was not really pushing forward, and that would be the American Expeditionary Force in the Meuse-Argonne. Like an inexperienced boxer lunging forward in the ring for the first time, the Americans had come in swinging, burned bright and flamed out fast in those first days of their big offensive. The 72-hour timeline Pershing had mandated for the first phase of the offensive had come and gone with only some of the Ernest Doughboys just halfway to their objectives. After four days of heavy fighting, five of the AEF First Army's nine attacking divisions were to be relieved. In Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett's First Corps, the shattered 35th Santa Fe Division was to be replaced with the veteran First Division. The three raw divisions of Major General George Cameron's 5th Corps, the 91st, the 37th, and the 79th, would be pulled out and replaced by the veteran 32nd and 3rd Divisions. 3rd Corps' 80th Division was taken out of the line, but Major General Robert Bullard immediately sent units from the Blue Ridge Boys right back up to the front. To be fair, the Americans had taken over a part of the front that the Germans had known for years was of immense importance what with the critical rail hubs of Sedan just 40 miles behind the front lines. They had prepared the entire region for just such a battle as the one the Americans were giving now, and there was no room to give. On the Somme, on the Vel, and on the Ork, the Germans could trade some space for time. But here in the Meuse, there was none of that. Every inch had to be fought for, and the Doughboys would have to buy it at a steep price in blood. General Pershing had to acknowledge that his divisions needed to be replaced, and he grudgingly conceded the point. On the 30th of September, he ordered a brief pause put into the operation as some of the now combat-ineffective units were pulled out of the front lines. Pershing wanted the units replaced and for general line attacks to continue on October 4th. He didn't want to lose what momentum his troops had gained in the previous days. But there was a mountain of work to be done. First, that bloody traffic jam behind the front had to be cleared out. Drivers were rightfully complaining that it was taking them 15 hours to move but a handful of kilometers. Ammunition for the infantry had to be brought up to the front. Guns, many now out of range due to the advances of the battered divisions up on the line, had to be pushed up as well. Too many infantry units were charging into German machine guns with no artillery support. Food needed to be brought up to the front. By October 1st, the American First Army had been engaged in heavy combat operations for the past six days continuously. Many units had gone days without rations of any kind, except for what they could scrounge off German and American corpses in the fields. There was a particular traffic that needed to go away from the front, the wounded. Many of these men, shot, shredded, and gassed, had lain exposed to the rain and frost for days since they had been wounded, and they desperately needed proper medical care. A lot of these doughboys, once they were finally picked up by the ambulance corps, were dying on the bumpy ride back due to the traffic. 
Ambulances were delivering corpses along with the putrefying wounded. A lot of work had to be done to get First Army in shape to resume the offensive. While this operational pause was in place, American units remained in contact with the enemy. In the First Corps, the 77th Division continued pushing ever deeper into the Aragon Forest, and the neighboring 28th continued to fight furiously for Le Chêne Tendu and Apremont. On the other end of the front, the Third Corps' divisions continued soaking in the iron rain the Germans were sending over from the right bank of the Meuse, all while continuing to fight in the woods north of Nantiwa. While we remain in this pause for First Army, we're going to cut over and take a look at other Americans fighting in the Champagne, namely the regiments of the U.S. 93rd Division. That, however, will be for the next episode. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on the Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.